your Bibles this morning, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And that's just one of the reasons that I love this week. I, I love this week that we get to stop and we get to celebrate. I am always excited to be able to come and uh, have our patriotic program to be able to hear our choir's voices and the orchestra and all who uh, participate in the music ministry, worship ministry. I love to be able to hear them lead us in worship during that special time. It's a great opportunity for us to stop and to celebrate the freedom that we have and also to stop for a moment in those programs and give thanks not only to God, but also to those that he has utilized over the years to secure our freedom. It's a great opportunity. I love this week. I love it. I love just stopping. I love being able to go out and grill a little bit and just visit with people and have those moments. Don't you just love this week? Hey, I love it even though my sister and her family are coming in on Wednesday. Yeah, I'm working through it right now. It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. I'm talking myself into it. It's going to be okay. And some of you, you're having, how many of you are having like cookouts and those kinds of things this week? Okay. So I've got plenty. Of, it, would you mind hosting my sister this week when she comes in just for, you don't have, she doesn't have to sleep at your house, but maybe come over and just visit with you a little while. Maybe. I love, I love this week. I love this week where we can stop and again, spend time with one another and even come to our programs and recognize uh, God's blessing in our lives, in our freedom that we have. Hey, but even as we stop and we think about the blessings that we have, we know also we face many challenges, many obstacles as a country, as a nation. And it's a reminder for us to stop and pray for our nation, to pray for those around us, we recognize that today our culture is anything but a godly culture. Anything but a godly culture. Some people have said that we are entering into a post-Christian culture. Not just here in our nation, but around the globe. That you see Christianity itself waning in its influence, and thus we are entering into a post-Christian time. We may well be, but you know what is encouraging to me? is that as I read through the Scripture, especially like Acts ch chapter 17, I am reminded that the gospel is just as powerful in a post-Christian culture as it was in a pre-Christian culture. Because what we see today in many ways mirrors what we see in the New Testament, what those early apostles and disciples faced. And it reminds us that the good news is not based upon the culture. Its, it's power is not based upon the way of life that we see around us. The power of the gospel is based in God and how God can change individuals and change even the culture itself. And I hope you and I, as we study Acts chapter 17 this morning, that we're reminded of that power. We're reminded that, yes, we may grow tired and we may grow weary, but the gospel still has an impact and significance today, and it reminds us that we keep going and sharing and giving forth the hope, the message of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 17 we have followed the Apostle Paul on this second missionary journey.
He has seen the gospel take root in Thessalonica. He has been to Berea where they sought the scriptures and they heard what Paul had to say. And now he enters into that city that has often been referred to or at least recognized as the center of culture itself. Like it is It is the place where the sculptors and the authors and the poets and the philosophers live. This city called Athens. Look in verse 16. And it says, now while Paul waited for them, that is he's waiting for the rest of the missionary team to join him. It says, while he waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. So Paul is in Athens. I mean, this great city, again, of culture, this great city that boasts itself upon intellect and academia, this great place where all they wanted to do, basically, it seems, was to hear something new. Now, understand for 500 plus years, the Athenians had taken pride in being the leader of culture, of being the place where people could express themselves and these new ideas. Except during the New Testament time, Athens was only a shadow of its former self. I loved one description. I wanted to read it to you. One description of Athens during the New Testament time. It says that at this moment, it was a provincial backwater, a small university town of about 25,000 people, more concerned with ideas than commerce, and living in the memories of its glorious history. So it is a shell of itself. It's only 25,000 folks. I mean, think of that. Usually when I think of these larger cities, especially in the New Testament time, I'm thinking of a much greater population. But here, only about 25,000 folks. Something, something similar to Ruston, right? Except when the university's in here and we have like 78,000 people, right? Prepare yourselves for September. It's coming. But it's just a small town. And it prides itself on its culture. And and what Paul noticed as he was walking through the city, and look, this is the idea that he has taken some time to just go through the city and see what's happening. And, And when he's walking along, he sees a city filled with idols. Someone has said that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. Because there were so many Idols that would line the streets. Idols that would be found throughout the city and even into the countryside itself. So Paul, he visits this esteemed city. And he looks around and he sees all the idolatry. And this is what I want you to see. 
he was troubled. He was troubled by the expanse of lostness, of how lostness was all around him. He was troubled by the expanse of lostness. He was troubled by it. Notice what the scripture says. The scripture says that his spirit was provoked. That word provoke means to sharpen or to irritate. It can also mean to be upset, to be extremely upset. In other words, when he's looking around at this culture and he sees all of these different gods and he sees all of this paganism, there is something within him that is moved and he is extremely upset. He's greatly upset. I found two other phrases that would describe this word by Luinata. They said that in some cultures, you need to translate this, that his heart was eating him. His heart was eating him. Or maybe to say that his stomach was hot. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounded like a good phrase I found. His heart was eating him. Like something inside was just bearing down on him. When he saw all of this lostness, this expensive lostness, he was troubled to the core. He was conflicted and he was angry. Now, there are times in life that we can grow very upset. There are times when it will seem like our heart is eating us. Sometimes... Very minor things can set us off, right? Somebody got your parking lot at the grocery store or parking spot at the grocery store. Just when you were about to turn in, those people saw you sitting there waiting and they turned right in in front of you. And what happened? You got a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry. You were trying to remind yourself of your testimony, but basically... It was borderline whether you would keep it or not. How about telemarketers? I touched a nerve this morning. <laughs> when telemarketers. Now, I know a lot of times when you see a certain number from Baton Rouge or Timbuktu or whatever else, you don't answer. I know that. Of course, you also know you may be screening your pastor out of those calls. He still has a Baton Rouge number. But when you do answer and you hear that telemarketer on the end, when you realize that your warranty is out of date on your car, <laughs> or perhaps how you now qualify for a new kind of credit card, you grow a little bit angry. Oh, inject politics into conversations. And you will touch something off in this day and age where people's hearts will start eating at them and they will become easily upset. There are things that we grow upset over. I would say to you, very minor little things that bother us from time to time. Now, I do believe there are some things that should bother us. I do believe that. Let me just say this. This is not a political statement, but I'm just going to put it out there. When we see a picture of individuals who lose their lives trying to cross the Rio Grande, this should not be political theater. 
This should be us grieving because people are dying and people are in situations that need help. And let me just say, before you think I'm taking a political side, both political parties have failed our government and have failed our country in taking care of these issues and these individuals. Everybody. And when we see those things, we ought to be deeply disturbed. When somebody, anybody, loses their life, we ought to be disturbed. There are things we ought to be upset about. But let me say this. How about the lostness all around us? You and I can get so upset over losing our parking space at the grocery store. And yet it seems that it takes so much to get us upset over the lostness, the expansive lostness, the vast lostness that we see all around us. And listen, this is not just in the nations. There is lostness in the nations. But understand there is lostness in our nation. All around us. And when we walk the streets, when we see our country, when we see the things that are going on, we ought to be moved. We ought to be stirred inwardly. We ought to be conflicted. Our hearts ought to eat away at us. Paul saw this pre-Christian culture and his heart was moved. I'm not sure that I've ever had such an experience as I had a few years ago when I went to South Asia with one of our teams. And we would go to different places, public places, parks or so, and engage individuals, hopefully with the gospel. But at one point, one of the resident missionaries who, were there, who was there said, hey, why don't you, let, let's go to the temple. There's a Hindu temple here, and I'd like for you all to go. And let's just sit outside. And we did, basically, we sat outside because there are a lot of people that were seeking something spiritually. That's the reason they're at the temple. There, you can have a good spiritual conversation with them. And one of the guys said, you ought to go into the temple. I was like, ooh, I don't know about that. And he's like, oh, you need to go in. You need to to experience this. So I went in and uh, they're kind of in the inner sanctuary, whatever they would call it. You would see this statue and it was a cheesy looking statue. I'm just going to be honest with you. I looked at it like, I mean, that stuff looks like it is made of some type of styrofoam. It's just been painted up. I mean, and I'm looking at it like, are you serious that people would worship this? And just about that time, there was a guy who came in and bowed down and began to worship. And over to the side was his child, his son, who was there mimicking every act, every expression of worship. I looked at that and I thought... How tragic. How tragic. That not only is this man worshiping something that could never help him, but so is this young boy. I went away and I had conversations with some folks outside, and then all of a sudden I heard this great noise coming from the temple. 
One of the guys looked at me and he said, you ought to go back in there now. They're having more of a worship uh, time. And I said, you really think? He said, you need to go. And I went in and I saw this room full of people. And they were bowing, they were clapping, they were stomping their feet. The priest was ringing the bell and there were all of these um, sounds emanating from the temple that was supposed to be a sound of worship, I guess. And again, I said to myself, how could so many people be deceived? And how could so many give their allegiance to this idol that could never help them in this life, much less the next life? And I was grieved. But you know what I've noticed? Is you and I don't see quite that many temples dotting our landscape today. There are some. Go to some of the urban areas. You will see some. Even here, you will see those who worship false gods. But I want to say to you that even though there are not as many temples, as many idols that are set up in our country, maybe as some other countries, idolatry consumes our nation. It may not be in certain temples. It may not be a certain uh, cutout that has been made. But you and I should know that idolatry is all around us. Materialism the things that we have given ourselves to as a people, as a nation, idolatry. Idolatry walks our streets. And we should be conflicted. We should be troubled. I'm afraid that sometimes that we see so much of it that we grow numb to it. We grow numb. I think as Jeremiah says that there's a culture that develops that does not blush. In other words, there's nothing that can shock the culture anymore. They kind of live and there's no kind of embarrassment or blushing in any way anymore. And I think we grow so accustomed that we're not surprised by what we see. But I say to you, we need, we need new vision. We need to once again see the expansive lostness that is around us. And then notice this about Paul. He was troubled by the vast expansive lostness. But then what did he do? Well, he intentionally built a bridge to those who were lost. What do you mean by that? Well, when you read this text, you'll see how he intentionally builds this outreach to people through some type of, um, through some type of connection. And let me point this out. He wasn't just mad. And he wasn't just mad at the lost. He was mad at lostness. He was mad at sin. See, this is the issue I would, I would just say to you. Before we can build a bridge with people, we need to realize people are not our enemies. They really aren't. When I look at somebody and they are crusading for something that is wrong, that is ungodly, they are not the, the enemy. What has happened is that life, their eyes, 
Their eyes have been blinded by the enemy himself. The enemy is not an individual. The enemy is Satan himself and sin and all that comes at us. That's what we ought to be angry at. We don't get angry at other people. We get angry at what Satan is doing in other people's lives. And instead of us fussing and fighting with other people, we need to say, hey, our battle here is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with these spiritual principalities that are trying to push back against the kingdom of God. So what I want to do is try to build a bridge with this person. What did Paul do? Well, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. You and I shouldn't be surprised by that. Because when Paul would go into any city, if there was a synagogue there, that's where he would be. He would go to the synagogue first. Why? Because he knew again that he had some type of connection. Last week in the gathering, I told them it was kind of like uh, meeting some folks from Mississippi for me. If I meet some folks from Mississippi, I usually would say, hey, yeah, yeah, what part of Mississippi are you from? And I would start, you know, kind of making a connection here or there. It's sometimes, um, sometimes you might even say, like, do you root for Ole Miss or do you root for Mississippi State? Now, I told Ben last week, I know there's another school that's south. I know that, Lloyd, but nobody roots for them much. So I usually say, Ole Miss or Mississippi State. That's are, are you rooting for those those two? And you know we talk about it, and then of course, especially this time of year, we mourn together. It is a connecting point because we just had college baseball season. Omaha means Ole Miss at home again, and of course they're at home. Mississippi State did get in, but they lost, so we just mourn together. There's a connecting point, right? Well, for Paul, he goes into the synagogue because they've got a shared heritage. So he's able to talk to them about the scriptures and talk to them about their culture. So he builds a connection. But this is what I love about this passage. It says that not only does he go into the synagogue, but during the day or outside of the Sabbath, it says that he goes to the marketplace or to the agora. He goes to the marketplace where people are. And he would just have conversations with them. He's sharing the gospel with them in the marketplace. Dr. James Travis used to tell us at Blue Mountain College, he said, guys, he said, all you got to do is find a center and they will lead you to other centers. That's all that's going to happen every time. He said, you find one, they'll lead you to others. And then what you do is you share the gospel with them when you get there. And here... He just goes to the marketplace because he knows there are a lot of lost people. And he can have a conversation with them. He's going to build a connection right where they are. And while I would love to know that there are a lot of lost people, and, and I think there are lost people here this morning, I'll just say that in this building. I believe there are lost people. But I also know there are a lot more lost people on the streets of Ruston and beyond than they're here this morning in this sanctuary or there in the gathering. And you and I need to go to where they are. We need to build connections with them. Hey, I love finding some kind of bridge to speak to them about. It may be a practical. Do you golf? If people golf, they need the Lord in their lives. <laughs> I tried it. My Lord is big, 
He is good and he is great, but I'm not sure he could have sustained my lifestyle as I was doing that, especially uh, trying to keep my character intact. But maybe you play golf. Use that as an outreach to people. Maybe in your workplace, your work is worship. Where you are, you're able to reach out to individuals. Build a connection. Build a bridge. Build a relationship so that you can share the gospel with them. But people have such different worldviews today and their perspectives. You don't think they did? In the New Testament time and again here in the book of Acts, they're in Athens? Oh, yeah. It says that as he's sharing, he comes across Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans, they believed basically that just the material world that you see, this is it. The material world that we have, this, this is it. They did not believe in an afterlife. They believed that you were to enjoy pleasure here on this earth. It is that old adage, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Now, they didn't believe in excess, but they believed in just living a life of pleasure here, because this is what it's about. They believed in gods, but they believed that gods were indifferent to our plight and to history itself. The Stoics? Well, the Stoics believed there was something behind all of this material. They believed that there was a principle, an underlying principle, reason. You know what they called it, actually? The Stoics called it the Logos. That's what they called it. The underlying principle of all of the world, the blueprint of everything. And that, it, and that reason was to somehow govern your life. And you were to allow reason to guide you. And in the end, when you die, there was this spark that is from you that would join that one principle. So there was some type of immortality, but there was no resurrection. There was no coming back. It was just your spirit would go and be with this underlying principle. Now, I love Star Wars. I just lost all respect from some of you. I say that. I love Star Wars. I love the trilogies. I, I love watching them. But there is this same kind of idea of the force that is behind everything, right? And here, the Stoics believed there was a force. And somehow when you died, you, your spirit just became one with the force. There were people with different perspectives in Athens just as there are people with different perspectives today. But you can still build a bridge. Well, people today, are, they, are, they just look at us and, you know, they don't see us in a positive light as believers. When have we ever really been seen in a positive light in Christian history? Oh, oh it says that the Stoic Epicurean philosophers, some of them encounter Paul, and a few of them say, what does this babbler want to say? Babbler. I love the word. I wish I had more time to flesh it out. It basically means something like seed picker. A seed picker. What does this seed picker have to say? 
It is the image of like a bird going along and like picking up different seeds in different places. You've seen birds like they'll just kind of pick up the seeds and they'll get this from here and this from there. It's kind of like they're saying, Paul's just been out there and he's picked up a little bit from this philosophy and a little bit from this theology and a little bit from over here and a little bit from there. He's just like a seed picker. One commentator gave a very vivid illustration of this. He said, it's kind of like somebody that would walk around and they would find cigarette ends and they would pick them up and try to smoke them again. Okay, it wasn't a Christian commentator, I guess. They're trying to find all the scraps. It's like he picked up all the scraps and he put it together into his own theology. So they were detracting of Paul. And they didn't understand. You say, well, they, people, don't, they just don't seem to understand the gospel. They didn't understand the gospel then. As a matter of fact, this is what's really mind-blowing to me. They believed that Paul was talking about two different gods. Jesus and the resurrection. In the Greek, the resurrection is anastasis. Jeremy, Zach, anastasis. Sometimes we'll sing that song. It's one of the best, I think, modern-day hymns that is out there, actually, of Oh, Praise the Name. And it says anastasis. Anastasis is the word for resurrection, or one of the words for resurrection in the New Testament. It, uh, sometimes you've seen people named Anastasia. Or something to that effect. It is a female. It is a female type of terminology. It's a feminine word in the Greek. So what they believed is they were talking about Jesus, the masculine God, and Anastasis, the female God. You don't think they had this totally wrong? They had no clue what Paul was trying to say. Oh, but they invite him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, which was a council and also a location. Areopagus, the hill of Ares. The Greeks would call Ares the god of war. Some of you have other translations that might say something like Mars Hill because the Romans believed Mars was the counterpart of Ares. So in the Roman god of war was Mars. So sometimes it's called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. He came up and he began to give his account. They wanted to hear what he would have to say, this council, a council of philosophers. And look what, how he began actually. Verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious that can be positive and negative the way he starts this. I think it actually was intended in both kinds of ways. I think he's building a bridge. He said, you're very religious. But he's going to remind them that religion saves no one. You're very spiritual. You got a lot of things going on here, he says. Verse 23, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. Therefore, the one who you, you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Notice how he built this connection with him. He said, I know you're very religious. I know you take 
spirituality very serious. He said, I even noticed there's an there's a inscription out there to the unknown God. Some people have called this the just-in-case God. You know, they had all these other idols that were there. They had them named. They had their duties. They had their reign over certain territories or events. But there's the unknown. Just in, just in case we missed one, <laughs> we're going to put another one up because we don't want to offend him. Just in case. And Paul says, I want to tell you about a God that you haven't known. Now, Paul's not saying that they have actually worshipped him because they don't really know him. But Paul says, let me, let me connect you here. And let, let me give you the message that he builds. He, he builds a bridge intentionally to them, and then he clearly communicates the message of Christ to the lost. So notice he's troubled. He builds a bridge, and then he communicates the message. What does he say? Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. This God I'm telling you about is the creator. He created all things. And what's more is he is a God that is not captured in temples or with human hands. Now, some of us were in Greece back in March, and we stood there at the Areopagus. It's there overlooking Athens, but right above the Areopagus, over this rocky cliff area, you would just turn around and you would see, you would see the Acropolis right behind us. And some of you are familiar with history, probably you know the Acropolis, and there are different temples that would be found there on the Acropolis, but there is one that many of you have heard of, the Parthenon, the most recognized building in Athens. It would be right behind. It'd just be like in the, in the shadows of Paul's words. And there you would go up and the people would come in and they would find their gods, just as the temple I was telling you about earlier, the modern day temple in South Asia. And people would go and they would give their respect and their devotion. So here's Paul standing right in front of this and he says, hey, this God that I have, the creator God, he can't be captured in a temple. And reason this with me just a moment. If a God is that good and a God is that great, how could you capture him totally in the temple? Some of you say, well, they built a temple for him in the Old Testament. Go back and look at what Solomon says. Solomon knows that he has not contained God. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, or before at least this uh, mock trial that is brought, he says that we have a God that is not, again, contained by human hands and in human temples. He says, he is the creator. Then look at what he says. He says, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He is the sustainer. 
He created you. Listen, he created you and also he sustains your life. You and I just need to be reminded of that. The only reason we got up and got to come to church this morning is because Jesus put breath in your lungs. He gives us all that we need. We, we do not, he does not need us. We need him. That's what it says, right? We need him. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. He says, all nations were created by him and he continues to sustain all nations. So he sustains our nation and if we ever forget that, we will find the consequences of it. But he sustains our nation, and he sustains all nations. All nations across this globe. He is the creator, and he is the sustainer. He says in verse 28, and, and I love this, because what he does is Paul appeals again. He builds that bridge to two of their poets. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That little quote there, comes from a Cretan poet that had written many, many years before. And he was talking about Zeus, but now what Paul is saying is, <laughs> the God I proclaim to you, he is the one. He is the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. There was another poet that had talked about Zeus and how we were, how the Greeks were the offspring of Zeus. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. The God of heaven, the creator, sustainer God, who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, he is the one who gives us life. And he it is through him that we are sustained each and every day. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It doesn't mean that God gave them a pass on the sin. What it means is, especially as you read through this, is God has held back his judgment for this moment. In other words, he's not brought judgment on you as he should have. God has been patient and he has been kind. And listen, you and I know that there are many days when we as a people we should face the judgment of God because of decisions we've made. Amen or oh me. Because of decisions we've made as a nation and a country, we have invited the judgment of God upon us. But God is patient. God is gracious. And here he says, God has withheld his judgment. So what happens? He is creator, he is sustainer. That means he's Lord. And if he's Lord, you need to repent, he says. He just told these philosophers who pride themselves on thinking and their worldviews and their perspectives. He just said, you need to change your mind. So why he built a bridge to them, he also was very clear in communicating the truth to them. He says, you need to repent. Repentance means a change of mind, will, action. You need to change because he is Lord. 
Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Ah, the linchpin. The resurrection. He says, this one who's the creator, this one who is the sustainer, this one who is the Lord, he is also the judge. There's going to come a day when he will bring judgment. But how can you face him, the judge? How can you face him? You face him through the one who brings life. You face him through the one who demonstrated his power over death, hell, and the grave. That is Jesus, the one that God appointed. He is the one who's been resurrected. Hey, the resurrection changes everything. I don't have enough time to just work it out this morning for you totally, but hey, the resurrection changes everything. If Jesus came out of that grave, and yes, he did, then that changes everything else. It validated his ministry, his work, his death, everything. Hey, if a dead man lives, that means that that man was more than a man. It means that he was the God-man. So when he looked at the philosophers, he said, I'm reasoning with you. I'm trying to build a bridge to you. But understand that Jesus is the resurrected one, and that has transformed everything else that we believe. So many of the philosophers, this was such a foreign idea to them. Some didn't even believe in the afterlife. And it says, verse 32, that some, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. Others said, we'll, we'll hear you again on this matter. We'll bring you back. So Paul departed from them. But this is what I want to leave you with. While he was troubled at the expansive lostness, the vast lostness, while he tried to build a bridge to them, and while he communicated clearly the truth of the message. What he saw in the end was some rejected, but listen, some believed. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Apagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed. Why do we keep sharing the message of Christ? Well, one, we're just compelled to because we've been saved and it's, we just got to get it out of our system, right? I think sometimes you just got to tell people what Jesus has done for you. It's a compelling type of work in our lives. But the reason we continue to share the message of Christ is because we know that no matter what a person looks like or where they've come from, no matter the background, no matter anything, that salvation is only secured through one name, and his name is Jesus. And there are many people who will never accept Christ, unfortunately. And my heart breaks for that. But listen, some will. Some will. Why do you keep giving invitation on Sunday mornings? People... People just don't come down as much as they used to. They may not, but guess what? Every time I preach, I still believe that somebody could be saved. 
And for me to walk out of this without giving some type of invitation? Why would you talk to somebody about the Lord in your workplace or the Lord in your classroom? Especially when most likely it seems like 80% of them are going to say, we don't want anything to hear or we, 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 don't, we don't want that stuff. Why do you keep doing it? Because there's going to be one or two or three or maybe more who will accept Jesus Christ and you just change their whole eternity. Paul kept going. He was troubled. He built bridges as much as he could. He communicated the gospel because he knew that some, that some would believe and trust because that's the power of the gospel. I say again, if the power of the gospel can impact a pre-Christian culture, it can impact our culture today. May we be faithful in the proclamation of Jesus' message and his hope to others. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you again for encouraging us, for challenging us through your word. And God, I pray right now that if there's one person here in the sanctuary or there in that gathering that has not accepted you as Lord and Savior, that they'd do that today. And God, for many of us in this place, we need to recommit ourselves to sharing you no matter what is coming in our culture. Lord, we believe that your message is the most powerful and dynamic force that can change our nation, our country, and even the nations themselves. Lord, help us to be faithful in this proclamation. Help us to commit to pray, to seek, to go, and to proclaim, even this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?